This episode of The New Way We Work is brought to you by Verizon, the network America relies on. Hello, welcome. Uh, This is Secrets of the Most Productive People, a live recording of Secrets of the Most Productive People from the Fast Company Innovation Fest. This is a podcast where we try to work smarter instead of harder and figure out exactly how to get it all done. I'm Fast Company Deputy Editor, Kate Davis. And I'm Fast Company Assistant Editor, Anissa Pumasari-Horton. And in this live episode, we are going to be talking about the secrets to unlocking habit change in your brain. Um, With us to my right... I have Dr. Tara Swart. She is a neuroscience leadership coach and medical doctor who works with leaders to achieve mental resilience and peak brain performance. She is Fast Company contributor and the author of The Source, Secrets of the Universe, The Science of the Brain. And to my left, I have Nir Eyal, who is a tech entrepreneur, behavioral design consultant, and angel investor. He writes about the intersection of psychology, technology, and business in the blog Near and Far. And he is the author of Indistractable, How to Control Your Attention and Choose Your Life. So there's, you know, a lot to get into here. Let's start just kind of with the basics of like adapting a new habit versus abandoning an old one. So so this is for both of you. What what happens in the brain when a person is trying to abandon a habit or adopt a new one? Um, so the physiology of how we wire and learn, unlearn and relearn in the brain is that you can't actually unwire something that's already in your brain. So when we have those sort of thoughts like, oh, I really got to stop doing X, it's much better to tell ourselves what we'd like to do instead. And if you're you know, managing people or you've got kids, then again, it's also better to, um, instead of saying, you know, I really don't like it when you do this, to suggest an alternative. So think of it as, let's say you spoke two languages when you were growing up as a kid, but you now don't use one of them. It is still there to some extent wired into your brain. You can't unlearn Spanish, but you can learn French by choice in adulthood. It's like that. So it's kind of like constantly like redirecting yourself to the thing that you want to do or the behavior that you want to do rather than like saying like, stop doing that, stop doing that. Yeah, absolutely. It's about building up a pathway in your brain that becomes thicker than the old pathway until that becomes the default. And then that new behavior is is the new you and it's easy and it doesn't take effort to stop doing the thing that you don't want to. I think it's also important to add that uh, habits are defined as impulses to do a behavior with little or no conscious thought. That the, these are, habits are, is not mind control, right? You can't necessarily put everything in your life on autopilot many habits, or many, sorry, many behaviors will never become habits. And I think, unfortunately, there is a bit of a myth out there that everything can become a habit. And I I think that sometimes backfires, that by definition, a habit has to be a behavior done with little or no conscious thoughts. So, you know, some people, I I hear people saying, you know, I, I want to make writing a habit or exercise into a habit. Well, it turns out that might not be a good candidate to start a habit around those type of behaviors because by definition, if writing is difficult for you, as it is for me, and I've written two books, it's really hard work, it's never going to be something that's done effortlessly. What it is, is not a habit, it's a routine. So a routine is just a series of behaviors done repeatedly. Now, you might say, okay, well, this is semantics, what's the big deal? This is really important because I think a lot of times today people think that I can make a habit out of something and that's shorthand for I want it to be so easy that I can do it every day. (laughs) But the problem is if we expect that, if we have that bar when we create a habit, sometimes it can backfire. People will do a particular behavior, they'll exercise, they'll write for X number of days in a row, 
And then after a few days, they'll say, well, this isn't easy, right? This isn't effortless. What am I doing wrong here? Is there something wrong with me, right? And then it'll backfire because they'll quit altogether. Whereas if they had a realistic expectation that look, only some behaviors can become habits while other behaviors should stay routines. I think that that's a good point to kind of talk about incremental and dramatic change. Because I find that when people usually talk about introducing a habit, they have like a massive goal, right? Or they want to do it every day. Can you both kind of talk us through what the difference is when someone does make something that's like incremental rather than dramatic and why one is more likely to be successful than the other? Sure, yeah, so I think um, uh, we, we know that taking small steps can be very effective towards creating routines so if, or a habit. So all habits start off as routines, but not all routines become habits. And one of the most effective ways to, uh, to perpetuate one of these routines and to turn them into a habit is to take small steps every day. Uh, so that we're making, you know, baby, baby incremental steps. I think that also uh, we find that we can actually stop to answer the other part of the question about when do we see change happening more dramatically. So I advocate for a technique that's called progressive extremism. And progressive extremism works like this, that sometimes there are behaviors that we want to just excise from our lives, that we know, you know, for me, it was eating unhealthy food. Uh, so it wasn't just about replacing those, those uh, old routines, those old behaviors, but also it was excising certain things from my life altogether. But I didn't want to go, you know, no carb or no sugar right away. If I did it very dramatically, that would be very hard to do. So instead what I did was use what's called progressive extremism. So I chose something that was very easy to give up, very easy for me to give up, but I had to give it up for the rest of my life. So in my case, we just had Halloween. This was a few years ago, but when I started this uh, several years ago now, it was also around Halloween. And my daughter had all this candy left over. And I remember looking at candy corns that previously, when I, just, when I didn't care about eating sugar, I would just eh, eat a candy corn or two. I don't even like candy corns. They <laughs> like gross. candy corns? Yeah, does anybody like them? <laughs> uh, so I said, that's gonna be the first thing that I'm never gonna eat again for the rest of my life. Right? I excised it from my life. So that was kind of a dramatic change, but it was so easy. I don't, I don't even like candy corns. And then a few weeks later, I said, I'm no longer, I was drinking a lot of soda at the time, sugary soda. Then I decided I'm not gonna drink sugary soda at home. I can have sugary soda outside the home, I can have diet soda, but no sugary soda in the home. And I'm not gonna drink it again for the rest of my life. So it was these small incremental steps that I took that led up to this big dramatic change years later. But when I was ready, and when each incremental change was very easy to do. I mean, there's something to be said for bringing in a change into your life that's very intense, like, you know, writing, which we were both saying we find quite difficult. So something has to be attention intense enough to physically change your brain. And from my point of view, we're looking for neuroplasticity, which is the ability of your brain to flex and change, to deal with changes that get thrust upon you that you didn't necessarily choose. So. If you do take on new learning in adulthood, like learning a new language or learning a musical instrument, which is very intense learning, you're making your brain, um, you're getting global benefits in your brain, which is that you're getting more plasticity, you're more able to regulate your emotions, suppress your biases, solve complex problems. But when we're talking about these small bad habits that we have that many of us want to excise, um, or you know, just some healthier behaviors that we want to bring in, I'm absolutely an advocate of saying change 10 things by 1% rather than saying I'm going to lose 10 pounds or you know it's, it's better to say I'll drink an extra glass of water each day I'll go to bed half an hour earlier I'll walk 2,000 steps more each day than I usually do 
And then I found, and this is my version of your extremism, is that I take a quarterly theme to my yearly goal. If I set a yearly goal, it's embarrassing how quickly I have you know, already stopped doing it. But if I set a quarterly theme and I just work on two or three small things for the first quarter of the year, then usually they've become like habits or routines. And then I pick up another two or three for the next quarter. And then I look back over a year, and that's when I get surprised by, oh, wow, yeah, I, I don't drink sugary soda. I do drink enough water. Um, and that's a good feeling, and that helps you to keep momentum with these sorts of little changes. So I wonder, it sounds like, and it makes a lot of sense, that most habit changes you are successful if you do them in small bits and like break down a larger goal into smaller parts. Are there any types of habits or any maybe types of people's personalities that work better with a cold turkey, big dramatic change? So I'm thinking about things like I became a vegetarian when I was 12 and I, I didn't slowly give up meat. I just dramatically one day gave up meat. And, you know, for some people smoking, like, is it better to take that cold turkey approach? Is there a personality that that works better for or a type of habit that that kind of approach works better for? I find with that, in my experience with my coaching clients, that there has to be either a very strong positive or preferably, unfortunately, negative motivator. So the reason that people do things like give up smoking overnight or give up drinking overnight is because they have a serious health scare. I have to say that when I was trying to make some changes in preparation for my wedding, I had found positive motivation that I didn't think I had. Um, and as soon as the wedding was over, those habits fell by the wayside. <laughs> so I think for temporary, a positive motivation can drive you, but often with the gearing of the brain being more around not losing things and getting a reward, really making yourself understand what you stand to lose if you don't do this is a better way to, to, to do that. So, for example, with digital detoxes, a lot of people are finding that their life is now starting to suffer because of their addiction to looking at their phone or looking at social media. And so even if it's temporary, doing a full digital detox actually really makes you see what it is that you're giving up and what you stand to lose. Um, obviously, you're an expert on that, so you probably have something to add. Yeah, I, I think that what we see, actually, what you identified when you were a vegetarian uh, are you still a vegetarian? Yes, I am. Since what, I okay. was 12, so yeah, a very long time. Yeah. So what you, have, what you have entered into is what's called a, an identity pact. That, and uh, when we know that we have some kind of moniker, some kind of noun that we call ourselves by, this actually makes it much easier for us to stay on track to do what we say we're going to do. So if you think about you know, how this comes out of the psychology of religion, when someone calls themselves a particular faith, it becomes much more easy for them to abide by whatever rules they, they decide to impose on themselves. For example, a devout Muslim does not say, ooh, I wonder if I should have that beer today. No, a devout Muslim does not drink alcohol. That is not what they do. That is who they are. Uh, there's been studies that show that when people are prompted with the noun form of, you know, they call up potential voters and they say, are you a voter versus will you vote? The people who are prompted with the noun form versus the verb form and identify themselves as voters are five times more likely to actually go vote, right? So when you call yourself a vegetarian, you don't say, ooh, I wonder if I should have that BLT today. No, vegetarians don't eat meat as part of who I am. And so that's where you see this principle of long-term behavior change is identity change. And using that principle of calling yourself a moniker, calling yourself a noun can be very effective because what we found is that in the moment, Willpower, self-control, self-discipline tends to fail. 
doesn't work in the moment. What you need is not self-control and willpower and self-discipline. What you need is a system. What you need is, a, is an identity to help you stay on track. The identity one is interesting because, um, you know, I kind of understand where that rationale comes from, but I also feel like sometimes people feel like they should have a certain identity and so they sh therefore they should have a certain goal. How do you kind of determine whether the identity that you give yourself is one that you can actually stick to long-term or if it's something where they feel like it's something they have to do but not something they can yeah. stick with long-term? That's a great question. I get this question a lot from, uh, from parents who want to change their kids mm -hmm. or husbands who want to change their wives or wives who want to change their husbands and that tends to not work. <laughs> that it's very, very difficult to force someone uh, to change their identity. The best thing we can do is, of course, to change ourselves is to live, so when I, I get this question, I just wrote a book about uh, tech distraction called Indistractable, and the book is called Indistractable because that is the identity, that is the moniker. I want people to call themselves, I am indistractable. I, I don't answer every text message within 30 seconds. I, I don't, you know, I'm not constantly distracted. I choose my attention in my life, and that's the kind of person I am. But when it comes to changing someone else, you know, particularly for us parents, of course, the best thing we can do is to become indistractable ourselves before we can criticize our kids for being distracted. Yeah, so let's talk about distraction because that is what you wrote about. And, you know, that I feel like is a common obstacle that a lot of people have when it comes to implementing new habit. Why are we so distracted? And why have we always been distracted? Yeah, so th that's, thank you for saying that. That is exactly the, 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 the punchline here is that we have always been distracted. Plato talked about it 2,500 years ago. He called it akrasia, the tendency that we all have to do things against our better interests. And uh, today, it is easier than ever, of course, to, to be distracted because we are constantly in contact with these devices. And these devices are designed to be so persuasive and they are so pervasive that if you are looking for distraction, then distraction you will find. However, the, the reason I wrote this book is because I think that there's too much of a narrative these days that the technology is hijacking your brain, that it's addicting everyone, that there's nothing you can do about it. And in fact, studies find that when you believe you are powerless, it becomes true. It's called learned helplessness. And so that's what I wanted to counteract. I wanted to give people, including myself, I was patient zero here, a formula, a way to actually empower ourselves to make sure we don't get distracted. And, and the root cause, it turns out, of distraction is not what we call the external triggers, the pings, the dings, the rings, the notifications. That's actually not the root cause of distraction. The root cause of distraction is the root cause of all human behavior, which is a desire to escape discomfort, right? When we are lonely, we check Facebook. When we're uncertain, we Google. When we're bored, we check the news. We check stock prices, sports scores, Pinterest, Reddit. We use these products because we feel a discomfort that we don't know how to escape otherwise. That's called an internal trigger. And so once we realize that fact, that's the very first step to becoming indistractable is to learn to master those internal triggers. So distraction is definitely a roadblock for changing your habits and changing your mindset. What are other, one, how do you overcome it? But then also like, what are other roadblocks and how, how do you navigate around them? Like you touched on it a little bit of, oh, I'm going to write every day, oh wait, this is hard. You know, like what do you do when you, when you reach those roadblocks? Um, I really think it's about being mindful and raising from non-conscious to conscious what those roadblocks are and why they're there. So I love to equate our neural architecture to why evolution you know, made us that way. And if you think about how we were in the cave, we walked around barefoot in nature. 
We went to bed when it went, got dark. We sat around the campfire with our families. We looked at the stars in the sky at night. None of us do that now because we've got artificial light. We're switched on 24-7. And so, you know, I, I was looking into some research about this. And Native American Indians, when they make a big decision about something that's going to happen in society, they sit in a circle and they imagine the impact of that decision seven generations into the future. We don't even think about the impact of something like social media one generation into the future. We're frustrated with our kids because they're on their phone all the time, but we haven't really thought about what it means. So I think being mindful about it, understanding the impact that it's having on you, on your relationships. I mean, there's so many slogans saying we're more connected than ever before, but as a neuroscientist and a former medical doctor, I'm seeing that we're more disconnected and lonely than ever before. So. That human face-to-face -face contact can't be, you know, the, the importance of it can't be overemphasized. And usually I think it's because you've got a device and you've got all these apps, so you use them. How many of us have ever actually sat down and thought, is Pinterest or Reddit or Facebook actually making my life better? So I do think that step back, reflect, surface what your barriers are piece is really important. It sounds like it's a little bit like you touched on before of... The, the negative may be having a stronger effect than the positive. It's like, oh, I want to be the type of person who does this, maybe isn't as strong of a motivator as if I keep doing this, it's ruining this part of my life. Yeah, is there um, a way to use distraction to make a successful habit change if we're so predisposed to it? That's you. Yeah. <laughs> so I wouldn't call it a distraction. So I think there's a big difference between a distraction and I think what you're describing, which is a, di a diversion. So the best way to understand what distraction is is to understand what distraction is not. So the opposite of distraction is not focus. The opposite of distraction is traction. So both words come from the same Latin root, trahare, which means to pull. And they both end in the same six letters, A-C-T-I-O-N. That spells action. So traction is any action that pulls you towards what you want to do, things that you do with intent. The opposite of traction is distraction, anything that moves you away from what you plan to do with intent. So this is really important for two reasons. Number one, anything can be a distraction. If you sit down at your desk and you say, I'm gonna work on that big project, I'm gonna do that thing I've been procrastinating on, I'm finally gonna get to work and do that thing right after I check email, right? That feels worky, that feels productive, doesn't it? No, that's pseudo work. Why? Because what you planned to do was one thing and you did something else. That is a distraction. Similarly, everything can be traction. So I don't think there's anything wrong with social media. I think it's wonderful. I don't think it's a replacement for face-to-face -face interaction, but it is a wonderful supplement. How many people can you not keep in touch with because the, the distance separates us? So I don't want to give up social media. I want it as a supplement, not a replacement. And if you plan time for it in your day, you can turn those distractions into traction by simply making time for it so that you're using it on your schedule as opposed to the pings and dings and whims of somebody else's schedule. Oh, that's, that's so huge in so much of our coverage on productivity is that idea of like fake work, of sitting at your desk, everybody has done it, of sitting at your desk and like the day ends, you're like, I didn't, what did I do today? But I was busy. I was busy all day long, but yeah, that's, that's a great method of like, this is my, are you, it sounds like what you're suggesting is like, this is my social media time yeah. and or, this is my email time and not every time a new message comes in, am I like allowing myself to, to go that way? Right. Right. And, and if you think about, you know, two thirds of Americans don't keep any sort of a calendar. Well, how can you call something a distraction 
if you don't know what it distracted you from. Everything is a distraction if you don't know what you wanted to do with your time. And so that step of simply planning out your day and saying, this is when I want to use social media. This is when I want to be fully present with my kids. This is when I want to do email. This is when I want to concentrate. That is an incredibly important uh, uh, improvement that few people actually do. I actually have a stat for you. You've reminded me of by saying what a lot of your, you know, your um, material is around, which is that people who are distracted and multitasking, which in neuroscience equates to being stressed, so having higher levels of the stress hormone cortisol, um, if you come into work in the morning and sit at your desk in that kind of distracted state, um, the reduction in productivity and creativity and the ability to be collaborative costs businesses two and a half times as much as if you took a day off work. That is crazy. Yeah, that's, that's like... <laughs> To, I mean, about when it's, yeah, it's I about the bottom line there, but yeah, I mean, and that's what we've, we've covered it a lot too, of that whole idea of multitasking and that everybody thinks they're good at it and nobody actually is. It just means doing two things badly. It doesn't mean, you know, like doing two things at once. Well, it's, and that's just if it's two. In, yeah. in the brain, if you're doing multiple things at the same time, which we all are, then you're doing each task less well than you're capable of doing each one alone. So speaking of the brain, I, I think it's so fascinating, a lot of the things that, that you were on the, the show before and you talked about this a little bit, but a lot of like misconceptions that people have around how the brain works, um, which I think ties into you know, how they can control multitasking or if they're good at procrastinating or you know, those sorts of things. Can you shed some light on some of those misconceptions? I'm thinking of two in particular that we've talked about before. One, the left brain versus right brain, like I'm just a creative person or I'm just an analytical person. And the other one is the, that we only use 10% of our brains. Are you doing this just to annoy me, Kate? <laughs> no, I know that those are your two big ones. Yeah. And I just think they're so fascinating because, yeah, I'm annoyed by them too. You hear them all the time and it's like, but it's not true. I know. I mean, when I was writing the source and I, you know, put in some information about this left brain, right brain thing isn't as we thought it was, my editor actually challenged me and was like, are you sure? And I was like, yes, I'm sure. I have a PhD in neuroscience. It's just so <laughs> widely held as a belief. Everyone's like, no, we just know it. We just know it's true. Yeah, People yeah. don't question where it comes from. They I just mean, cite it as fact. The reason that we think it's true is that before we had sophisticated scanning techniques, we made assumptions about how the brain works from things like if we gave someone electric shock therapy, how that changed their, their behavior or if somebody had a mental illness and we cut the bridge that connects in the left, the left and the right halves of the brain, how that changed their behavior. Or if someone had a brain tumor and it was removed, what happened post-surgery. That is not the way to understand how the brain works. And now we're so lucky we have this amazing, sophisticated, dynamic way of seeing what happens in the brain when you experience an emotion, when you take a risk, when you make a decision. And so we see that it's a much more complex dynamic system with information flowing around the brain in all different directions with hundreds of networks and subsystems. And it's, although you know, there is a left and a right half, but the bridge that connects them isn't just a bridge that goes from left to right, it fans deeply into both sides of the brain. So it's much more connected than we thought. Um, there is some lateralization of capability in the brain, but it's simply not as fixed as all of your you know, logic is one, on one side, your ability to read or write is on the other side. It's just not like that. Um, and so, you know, neuroscientists have had to really walk the talk on how we used to think things worked, but it's, it's not that way anymore. And so 
the 10% of your brain thing, I don't even know where that came from, but when I watched the movie Lucy, I was just like mad the whole time I was watching it. Um, we have a lot of potential in our brains that we don't use. Um, but we are using all the different parts of our brains at different times. Um, and I just like to speak about using the fully integrative power of your whole brain, using your emotional intelligence, your motivation, your intuition, your creativity. We rely way too strongly on logic um, and we do multitask and we get easily distracted because you know, we don't know what we want to be doing with our time. So it's just about understanding how amazing your brain is and how much more you can get out of it um, by moving away from some old thinking. Can, can I add two more? Yeah. Two more popular myths. So number one, uh, the sugar high. Everybody knows that when you give kids sugar, they go crazy. Sorry, it's not true. <laughs> that in fact, studies found that when kids are given a placebo, they act absolutely no, not different. There's, there's nothing between the giving someone Just crazy. Sugar. Yeah, it's <laughs> not true. Um, but what we do know is that the sugar high does not affect children, it does affect parents. That when parents were told their kids were given sugar, they acted crazy. They followed their kids around. They berated their children. They rated them as, as being hyperactive, even when a child was given a placebo. The second myth, uh, is what is called ego depletion. Ego depletion is this idea that you run out of willpower, right? That willpower is like gas in a gas tank. So I used to do this all the time. I'd come home from work and I'd say, oh, I'd have such a tough day today. I, I'm spent. I, I can't say no. I'm just going to have that Ben and Jerry's and sit on the couch candy and watch. Candy corn. Okay, not candy corn. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but back in the day, maybe candy corn. And I, you know, I'll watch some Netflix on TV and I'll, I'll give in to the temptation. And there was actually quite a bit of research around, uh, around ego depletion uh, that was done several years ago that found that it had these magical properties that if you could give someone uh, sugar-sweetened lemonade that they could replenish their willpower. Turns out later on, other psychologists thought this was kind of fishy. They tried to replicate the studies, and they could not replicate them. Except for, and this came from the work of Carol Dweck at Stanford, and she found that there is, in fact, one group of people who is actually affected by ego depletion. They do actually run out of willpower like gas in a gas tank. And those people, and only those people, were the people who believed in ego depletion. <laughs> those are the only people who this affected. And so I think this is a really important revelation for us because how we perceive ourselves, the conversation we have with ourselves around what we are capable of directly impacts what we are capable of. When we think we are limited, when we think we have run out of willpower, we are. And I think that's why it's so dangerous these days when we are told that technology is overpowering us. This is such a popular narrative, and it ain't true. It's not hijacking our brain. It's not addicting everyone. It addicts some people, just like how you know, alcohol uh, does have some people who are alcoholics, but not everyone who has a glass of wine with dinner is an alcoholic. Some people do have the pathology of addiction, but for the vast majority of us, it's actually hurting us to think that we are powerless because of how important these perceptions of our temperament are. So it sounds like a lot of, you know, and to get back to the, the left and right brain thing, a lot of it is like your beliefs and how your brain works are maybe like self-perpetuating and they make it true. So like, especially with the right and left brain, I think a lot of people will strongly identify, you know, like we were talking about identifiers. I'm a right-brained, that's analytical. I'm a left-brained person, I'm very creative, I can't, I'm not good at math, I can't do those things because I'm a left-brained person. And then that just kind of becomes like a self-perpetuating. Um, it's okay as a metaphor. 
It's just not a physiological <laughs> fact. Um, and I mean, you've made me think of so many more of them, both of you. So my actual worst one that you didn't even bring up is amygdala hijack. I mean, what an excuse for just bad behavior. <laughs> I couldn't help it. My, you know, part of my brain got overwhelmed and there was absolutely nothing I could do about it. Well, unless you're two, that's just not true, right? Um, and I love the metaphor of being a chef that has certain ingredients. So the amygdala hijack is like a coach being dragged off by wild horses and you can't rein it in. But if you think about yourself as a chef with water, butter, milk, eggs, flour and sugar, if I yell at you, you could make a scrambled egg with, with those ingredients and throw it at me, or you could bake a cake and offer it to me. That's how we need to think about manage, mastering our emotions. I find that really useful. And so where you were talking about, you know, whether if you believe in ego depletion, then it really affects you. Think about Roger Bannister. He was the first human that ever ran a mile in less than four minutes. We thought it was humanly impossible until he achieved it. As soon as he achieved it, seven other athletes achieved it in the next two months. So just thinking that something's possible changes your physical ability. I mean, that power of the brain over the body is, is incredible. And I have so many more research studies about it, but you know, too many to mention. But Talk about the secrets of productive people. Yeah. That is one of them. Absolutely. It seems that you're saying uh, one of the things that people need to do is more emotions management. Can you kind of talk more about what, I guess, the link between, you know, how someone feels about something and what their brain is doing? Because I think, I know personally, there's been situations where my brain is telling me I shouldn't do something, but emotions is telling me I should do something else. And usually it's easy to just succumb to that emotions. Yeah, so absolutely. So this is, this is super important because I think if you ask most people, uh, what is the source of human motivation? they'll tell you some version of carrots and sticks, right? That everything we do is about pain and pleasure. This is called Freud's pleasure principle. Neurologically speaking, it's not true. It's not true. In fact, what happens is that everything we do is spurred by one thing, and that is the desire to escape discomfort. That inside the brain, we have the wanting system and we have the liking system. The liking system encodes memories of pleasure so that the wanting system goads us into doing stuff by making us uncomfortable, even the pursuit of pleasurable sensations. Wanting, craving something, uh, uh, lusting after something. Well, there's a reason we say love hurts because even wanting something pleasurable is itself psychologically destabilizing. Physiologically, we know this is true, right? If we go outside and we feel cold, we are prompted to put on a jacket. Our brain tells us, get warm. If we come back inside, now it's hot. The brain tells us, this is uncomfortable, take the jacket off. And the same exact thing holds true psychologically, right? That when we feel these uncomfortable sensations, whether it's loneliness, stress, uh, anxiety, fatigue, whatever it might be, we reach for something to help us feel better. Whether that's too much television, too much booze, too much Facebook, too much whatever, to satisfy, to, to soothe ourselves from these uncomfortable sensations. So just, just as you mentioned earlier about some of these techniques that we can use, the first step is to recognize that discomfort. Uh, there are many, many techniques that we can use. Some of the techniques I, I talk about in the book come from uh, what's called acceptance and commitment therapy. And one of my favorite techniques is called the 10-minute rule. And the 10-minute rule says that you can give in to any temptation, any distraction, anything that you want to give in to in just 10 minutes. Now, the reason this is so effective is because we know that strict abstinence oftentimes backfires. That when we tell ourselves, don't do something, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. okay, fine, I'll do it. That relief of the tension of telling yourself to not do something is itself rewarding, right? Because if all human behavior is prompted by a desire to escape discomfort, what that means is 
that time management is pain management, that fundamentally it's about helping ourselves regulate these impulses, these uncomfortable urges. So this 10-minute rule works like this. You tell yourself, okay, I can have that piece of chocolate cake that I know I shouldn't have. I can have that cigarette. I can, I can watch that thing on YouTube that I know I shouldn't be watching right now, whatever the case might be, whatever that distraction might be. In just 10 minutes of doing what's called surfing the urge. Surfing the urge is when we contemplate as opposed to uh, criticize ourselves, right? So we contemplate that urge. We think about it. We so say, what am I feeling right now for just 10 minutes? Sometimes I'll take out my phone and say, set a timer for 10 minutes. I'll put it away. And I'm just there feeling that sensation and trying to figure out what, what's going on. Not talking to myself in, in, a, in a harmful way, not, not beating myself up. Many people are either what we call blamers. The blamers say, oh, it's my technology doing it to me. The shamers say, oh, there's something wrong with me. I'm deficient. I have a short attention span. It's ego depletion. They shame themselves. But instead, what we want to do is to, to be claimers, to say, look, this isn't my fault, but it's my responsibility. What am I feeling right now? And you'd be amazed how of just 10 minutes of surfing that urge, what we find is that those sensations, those emotions tend to crest and then subside. And nine times out of 10, within those 10 minutes of surfing the urge, you're back to the task at hand. I will say I'm a big fan of, I mean, this comes as no surprise to anybody who works with me or the fact that I host a podcast called Seek is the Most Productive People, but I'm very deadline driven and I find timers to be very useful in, it's called the Pomodoro technique of, um, especially with like focused writing, because writing, every writer like doesn't think writing is fun. It's, it's kind of torturous. Very difficult. Yeah, but so how I will force myself to write is set a timer and say, I'm not allowed to like check email, I'm not allowed to do anything else until this timer goes off. And um, I actually just took guitar lessons and was practicing guitar, which was very difficult because I'm very bad at it, you know, and I was like, oh, I hate this, but I'd set a timer and say, you can't stop practicing until the timer goes off. So I think setting those kind of parameters for yourself is, is really helpful in, in habit change. This episode of The New Way We Work is brought to you by Verizon, the network you can rely on for your phone and for your home internet. Find the plan that's right for you at verizon.com. I know that we want to give time for everybody else to ask questions because this is, I mean, we could talk about this for like two hours, <laughs> but um, so I'm going to open it up for questions if, if anybody has any. Uh, wonderful uh, talk. I would like, if you don't mind, to, uh, for you to focus on the role of time from the circadian rhythm through the social contract, working with others. For productivity perspective, we've studied artists and geniuses who may get up at 2 in the morning and have remarkable productivity and others who like the late night. Do you have a perspective on that? Hi, thank you for that question. Um, uh, my, my gut instinct as you were asking that question was that, you know, the reason that people are productive outside of the usual hours is usually because nobody else is awake. Um, in terms of the circadian rhythm, um, you know, as, as, a, as a medical doctor, I'm probably going to have quite a hard line on that because there's just too much data now that shows if we live outside of the circadian rhythm. So we're meant to sleep and wake in keeping with the dark light cycle. And, you know, our melatonin gets released from our pineal gland as it gets dark. That kicks off the falling asleep process, which takes about an hour. And we get a spike of cortisol from our adrenal glands around dawn, around an hour before we need to wake up. 
There's just too much evidence now that if you, if you work outside of those cycles that your cancer risk increases. So for example, we know that nurses and air stewards have higher incidences of certain cancers that are related to the hormones that are of a similar profile to melatonin and cortisol. I heard recently from a breast surgeon, pretty alarming, that if you even look at your phone for one second in the middle of the night to check the time, the effect that that has on your pineal gland increases your individual cancer risk by 300%. So from a circadian rhythm point of view, I, I'm gonna share that knowledge because I feel it would be wrong not to. However, there are early birds and there are night owls and you need to work out what's right for you. As long as it's not damaging your physical health, if there are certain times that you're more productive, then sure, of course, set your, your timers around that, um, but just make sure you're getting enough sleep and not being exposed to blue light at the wrong times. I will say we did a whole episode on chronotypes, which is like your natural um, waking and falling asleep time and your like when you're most productive and that some people are most productive at 3 p.m. and some people are most productive at 10 a.m. Um, I would suggest going back and listening to it, but the, the nutshell version of it is you kind of think about your, your ideal day if you had no um, obligations. What time would you naturally fall asleep and go to, or what time would you naturally go to bed and wake up? And then you kind of can do the math from there on like what your most productive time is. Because yeah, some people are like horrible in the morning and some people are, you know, horrible at night, yeah. I have a question for Nir. Uh, so what do you advise, you know, different salespeople and they're not succeeding, they jump from one job to another, you know, very bad habits, so, how, you know, how, how can you help them? Specifically with salespeople? Yeah. Well, I, I don't know if I have a special expertise in, in, in helping salespeople, but I think um, I used to actually do sales. I used to have a, a solar energy business where my job was a lot of cold calling. <laughs> that was uh, one of my one of my very first jobs. Uh, and, and I remember uh, the biggest barrier to closing sales was the time I spent in the chair making those calls. Uh, and it involves a lot of heavy lifting of uncomfortable stuff, right? It's, it's tedious work to dial for dollars. It's hard work. And so if you can learn to manage those internal triggers, if you can learn to manage that discomfort, to master those internal triggers, that's, I think, the very first step. The next step uh, is to make time for traction, right? We're not just going to do the uncomfortable stuff, right? We have, we have four authors here, none of which say that writing is easy. <laughs> it's hard work. And if you don't make the time to do that hard work, whether it's writing, whether it's sales calls, whether it's doing whatever it is that you've been avoiding, that, if that time's not on your calendar, as we talked about earlier, it's not going to happen. So I think that's step two. Step three is hacking back the external triggers. So all the pings, dings, and rings, and for salespeople specifically, one of the, the biggest distractions, for many of us these days, for us that work, who work in open floor plan offices, it's not just our devices and our computers, it's other people, right? We are constantly distracted in these terrible open floor plan offices that we all work in today by other people who say, hey, can I just gossip with you about this one thing, or let me just tell you something real quick. That can be a constant source of distraction. So one thing I recommend is to use a screen sign. A screen sign is this little thing you put on your computer monitor that tells your colleagues, it's bright red, that says, I'm indistractable right now, please come back later, right? Just a sign to your colleagues, I need an hour to be left alone so I can work, so I can make my sales calls, right? If you're constantly interrupted, as we talked about earlier, the big problem with multitasking is the task switching, 
That's what's harmful about multitasking, is that when we go from one thing to another to another, we, it takes us a long time to get back to the task at hand. So by blocking out that time, protecting it, hacking back the external triggers, that's very important. And then the last step is to prevent distraction with pacts, to use some kind of pre-commitment device that says, when I decide I'm going to do this, this is what's going to keep me accountable. So we have different kinds of pacts. We have effort pacts, we have price pacts, uh, and we have these identity pacts that we talked about earlier. So setting some type of, of disincentive if I don't do what I said I'm going to do. The most uh, effective smoking cessation study in history was one that had three groups. One group was given all the, the nicotine patches and nicotine gum they wanted. The next group was given $800 if they didn't smoke for six months, and this was validated with a urine test. The third group was given $650 if they didn't smoke for six months, but they had to pay $150 to be in the program, which would, they would get back if they didn't smoke for six months. The group that, was given, that had to put some skin in the game, uh, th that rate of not smoking was five times higher than the second group, group B, that was just given the $800 reward. And both groups did better than the control group of just nicotine patches. So having some skin in the game, having something that is, provides a disincentive to not doing what it is you said you're going to do, whether it's not checking your cell phone or whether it's uh, whatever it might be, as a last resort, as the fourth step, can be very effective. That, that's like my favorite habit change tip that we, we've talked about on the show before, which is, the, and it goes back to the negative, right? Of um, I've heard the tactic of if I don't do whatever, you know, the, the changes, I have to donate to a political group I hate, or I have to, you know, like the, the financial, like this is really gonna hurt me if, you know, if I don't follow through. So it's, it's super effective. One word of warning, if you jump to it first, it's really dangerous that in fact it can backfire. And then when it, when it does backfire, people beat themselves up, they feel horrible about themselves. So we wanna make sure we do that last, after we've done the other stuff. Because as good as those tactics are, if you don't deal with the internal triggers first of what's causing you this discomfort, maybe you just really hate sales and you're not cut out for it. You should probably do something else. So we have to talk about those internal triggers first. That's actually all the time that we have, and I think that's a really great wrap-up of those. I was going to, like, could we wrap up with the steps? But you did it for me. You numbered a bulleted list. Uh, Nir and Tar, thank you so much. Thanks very much. If this episode was helpful, please let us know. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. You can follow Fast Company on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Secrets of the Most Productive People is produced by Victoria Grace. 